podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, I'm Gareth Roberts from the Anfield Wrap. Uh, what's about to follow is normally a subscription show under Tour Player, which is £5 a month. Um, because enough people pay this, really, it allows us to get in the studio and do things that we want to do around football. One of the things I like to do, one of the things I'm really interested in, is the perception of football fans in society, really. I've done stuff on it before with Amanda Jacks, who touched on it too with Jeff Pearson, an academic who's, this is his area of expertise, if you like. And that's who I'm about to speak to, another one, another academic, really, with a lot of expertise in this area, Clifford Stott. Um, we've just recorded the show. We thought it was really good and really interesting and deserved a wider audience, really. So we're going to put this one out for free. But as I say, what allows us to do these things is the people who subscribe. So th- thanks to them. But also, if you enjoy this and you've enjoyed it for free, please consider subscribing to the Anfield app. Here is the chat with Cliff. It's the Cup of Tea show uh, with me, Gareth Roberts, and I'm joined today by Clifford Stott. Delighted to have him in the studio. Uh, we're going to have a chat about basically perception of football fans and football crowds, policing and stewarding of crowds, that kind of thing. It, um, I'm sure you've all seen that. It's a bit of a hot topic. Um, you know, what I, there was the reporting of Cologne and Arsenal and talk of return to the 80s and all this kind of madness by the tabloids. There was obviously 20-odd thousand fans who turned up for the game and tried to have a good time. Um, there's, there's been various other incidents that I think we'll probably get into as well. There was, there was the fans um, celebrating Manchester City's 97th-minute goal at Bournemouth. Um, and stewards seemingly taking exception to that fact, and just various other things, you know, in general, the perception of football fans in society, how they're treated, um, the behaviour of crowds, and that sort of thing. And, and Clifford is a is an expert on all this sort of stuff. Um, Clifford, you want to sort of kick it off by telling us about your background, who you are, and why why you are really an expert in this field. Hello, Gareth. It's good to be here. Cup of tea time, actually, with a cup of tea. So hey, I'm pleased see. about that. <laughs> Um, yeah, well, I've been in this area of research pretty much all my career. So, I mean, I think you just touch on a couple of examples, but the story is endless, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I'm sure that many of your listeners who are experienced football fans will have come across some pretty shoddy policing, some pretty shoddy uh, stewarding, and be fully aware of the kind of negative environment that sits around football fans. It's a massive part of the problem of what we have to face when we we travel around the country from stadium to stadium. And I think a lot of that is built off of the history, uh, but also the ongoing negative reputation um, that is built up actively around football fans in, in the media. So whenever anything happens... What we tend to see is some lazy journalism that that feeds off these kinds of stereotypes of football fans as problematic, football fans as hooligans and so on. So it's complex stories, a lot we can talk about. So uh, why don't you kick off with a couple of questions? Well, what's your background first, Cliff? I mean, what's your sort of official titles and that sort of thing, just so, you know, the listeners can get a a grasp? What's the day job, if you like? Well, I'm a professor of social psychology at Keele University. That's that's my day job. Uh, what that means uh, is kind of ambiguous, really, but I, I focus uh, on the study of crowd psychology and behaviour. And I study uh, crowd psychology and behaviour in lots of different environments, from protests, uh, mass emergencies, but in particular football. Um, my 
key area of research and development is around understanding the dynamics of football crowd violence and how to how to manage that. So very early in my career, I was doing work around the poll tax riot. And I went along to that demonstration and I saw that riot develop and I began to understand straight away that you couldn't really make sense of how that riot came about without taking into account the way it was policed. And then just two months later, I found myself in Italy at the World Cup Finals with England, um, surrounded by Carabinieri, uh, and there was a big riot. And you could see the parallels. Again, this wasn't really anything to do with what people were calling hooliganism and absolutely everything to do with the way that we as England fans were being policed or we as poll tax protesters were being policed. And if we wanted to get to grips with that and understand it, we had to start facing up to that reality. And it was a reality that just simply was not being represented in the media or in um, popular discourse, if you like, popular talk about why these things come about. So my career is kind of, in a sense, built off the back of that realisation and the realisation that if we want to try to stop these kinds of things from happening, we're never going to get anywhere unless we start addressing what the police are doing. And sometimes that's a really uncomfortable message, particularly for the police. But thankfully, through the progress of my career, I've met a lot of police who are actually quite sympathetic to that idea, um, begin to understand that actually policing can be really counterproductive if it's too heavy-handed and disproportionate. Uh, So I tend to try to build alliances with those kinds of cops to bring about reform, um, because I'm kind of an academic that doesn't... I don't want to just sit there theorising about it. Mm. I want to actually take that knowledge and try to create solutions to these problems that make um, the experience of going to football less less problematic. And are you are you working with police forces now, like in, a, in an official capacity? Yeah, well, I, uh, I work globally with police forces. Uh, I think it's a key part of, of what I do. Um, some people have a problem with that. Um, but I have to build these relationships yeah. because you need those relationships to integrate the knowledge to bring about the reforms. It's a, it's a, it's a tricky journey. There's a lot of resistance to what I do uh, within and outside the police. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I build relationships uh, and I built those really from, from time one. Um, so we had some very, very successful uh, relationships with, with the police in Portugal for the European Championships in 2004. And that was, that was a fascinating little journey. We came off the back of the, the riots in Shawa in the European Championships in, in Belgium when England played Germany, and there was a massive riot in the square there, um, and, and worked with the uh, Portuguese police to try to make sure that they didn't make the same mistake. And thankfully, they were... They were keen to listen to our message, uh, partly because it was um, a group of police officers who who had come into policing off the reforms post-revolution, where Portugal prior to 1974 was a fascist state. Mm. And these guys had come through the newly formed civil police education system post-revolution. And they could see the parallels here and the opportunities to start driving forward with a more democratic form of policing. And that coincided with our desire to try to get the police to police England fans in a different way. 
And when we delivered this in the tournament, it was incredibly successful. I think anybody who was at that tournament will talk to you about how how brilliant the policing was, how low-key, how friendly, mm. uh, how non-confrontational it was. And we didn't really see any, any disorder um, at any of the major fixtures. Now, of course, there was a couple of riots, but they were in Albufeira. And they were based in an area that was policed by Portugal's second police force that we didn't work with, who did it in the old school way. So to us, it was no surprise that that's where the problems happened. Yeah, I mean, that, I think that's that interesting straight away. And that's something, you know, you said earlier, you know, if anyone who's listening who's an experienced football fan, of which there will be plenty, you know, you'll have your own stories. And, you know, when I've got my own stories and I've... I find it interesting how crowds I've been part of are being p- policed differently at different times, even against the same opposition. So, you know, uh, an example that jumps straight to mind is is trips to Manchester United. Clearly, you know, between Liverpool and Manchester United, there is animosity, there, is, there has been problems, there has been fighting in the past, there are um, unpleasant chants from both sides at times. Um, and yet, you know, I've been to a Manchester United match at Old Trafford where we're all let out at the same time and allowed to go home and allowed to go and have a pint or mm. whatever. And I've been to ones where I've been kept behind for a long, long time, not being allowed to go to the toilets, uh, you know, listen to lots of people arguing with each other, arguing with policemen and eventually being allowed out. And I've never fully understood the latter, if I'm honest, um, simply because... I think if there's, just in my opinion, I think if there is anyone out there who's looking for a fight, they know exactly where you are after 45 minutes. Yeah. Whereas if you're all let out at the same time and you're mingling, well, unless you're a little bit of a dope, you're not shouting off that you're a scouser in the middle of Manchester and you can just go home. Um, but, you know, that's a, obviously there's lots of different people and different people making up the crowd, but it's it, that's literally the same force. The same force at different times use different methods. And as a football fan, I just somebody wants to go and watch the match. I find that confusing, a confusing message. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, it's important that we build a little bit of consistency and there's massive variability as you go around the country. And as you say, when you go from uh, match to match, sometimes that's because you get one police commander who does it one way and another police commander that does it another way. And what we're trying to do through this work is is to try to build a bit more consistency. But I think what you, you will find if you've been to Old Trafford over the last few years is how much it's progressively changing. Uh, if we go back 10 years and think about how it's policed now, mm. I think it's very, very different. And part of that has been an initiative that's been driven to a large extent by fans themselves. So your own fan base, the, the Manchester United fan base, have got some really progressive movements that I think are arguably quite political and and they understand that there are different ways of managing this and they work with people like Amanda Jackson at the Football Supporters Federation who've built links into the police to try to build a bit more of what we might call a dialogue-based solution to this where you kind of negotiate how that's all going to happen. Yeah. And then through that negotiation, um, you can pull back from a kind of heavy-handed corralling that you, you you tended to find into a situation where you can let the fans out altogether yeah. and so on and so forth. So it's really, to a large extent, about learning the lessons from that kind of change and trying to help the authorities to understand that uh, a lot can be achieved by 
um, toning it down a bit. Yeah. That the expectation that football fans are always going to be violent is wrong. And actually, you can negotiate with football fans to produce a solution to um, what is otherwise a really high-risk situation that can be passed off without any major confrontation. And it doesn't require the riot squad to be in control of that. That actually fans themselves can be in control of this. And if you build and empower that kind of movement within the fan base, then you're going to go a hell of a long way to reducing the overall problems. Because most of the problems that we get in football are not actually caused by football fans who go there with the intention of creating disorder. They just emerge from the nature of the situations and how they're managed. And what we try to do is to, to, to get the management of those situations a little bit more effective than it currently can be so that we can, we can uh, you know, move to a situation where there's uh, less confrontation, basically. So, well, let's talk about some of the, the, the recent incidents and, and one of the reasons I wanted to get you in because it has sort of been top of the news agenda a little bit lately. Um, you know, the Arsenal-Cologne matches is, is the obvious one. Uh, Cologne fans coming on mass to London. Um, I remember, you know, we were sitting in the office where we're talking in now, and we were all watching the little clips on on, on Twitter and everything else, and we were all saying how oh, it looked brilliant. You know, mm. they're all, they're all there, they're singing the songs, mm. they're they're having a good time, they're in the park in the day, and it was like, you know, imagine all Liverpool fans going on mass to an away gathering in one place, which does often happen, but I'm not sure about 20,000 at once like that. But it looked brilliant. It looked like they were having a cracking day, and then all of a sudden, later on. You know, you're seeing it reported in a very different way, and 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 there seems to be no appreciation of what I've just said. Really, that it was fans going for a for a good time. It was fans going to one of the biggest games they've been involved in for about 25 years. I think yeah, it was. Yeah. And yet, you know, we saw, you know, I've got some examples written down here. The Daily Mail reported that thousands of ticketless Cologne fans fought with riot police. I mean, well, where have we heard that kind of headline before? The Daily Usually Ex- in the Daily Mail. <laughs> yeah. The Daily Express was another one. They called it chaos across the front page. John Cross in the Daily Mirror wrote that it was a night of shame at the Emirates and a sorry throwback to the shameful spectre of football's 1980s hooligan days. There was headlines, fear and fire as Cologne fans stormed the Emirates. And there was reports that kickoff had been delayed after an invading army of 20,000 drunk, violent barbaric German football fans attempted to storm the stadium. As ever, massively over the top and and massively worrying to me as a football fan as well because, you know, as someone who's, you know, everyone who's involved in the Anfield rap in one way or another has campaigned for what went on around Hillsborough. And, you know, it's, it's, it's felt like you've got somewhere, it's felt like you've got some over some of these stereotypes around football fans. And then in a flick of the switch, they're all back again and they're all in the newspapers yeah, once again. Yeah. yeah, well, a particular type of newspaper. Let's well, yeah. focus on that yeah. for a start. And I think that the examples that you read out and their association with the right-wing press is no accident. And it is a language uh, that's been with us for centuries and it's a language that pathologises the crowd. And the reason it does that is because it wants to create an ideology or that legitimises repression. So if you can paint a picture of the crowd as something that's pathological, a kind of uh, disease, uh, then it justifies the repression of that crowd. And that that relationship is fundamental to uh, why it is that we come to see these events in the way that we do because of the way in which that particular view of the crowd is promoted. And what it seems to me that you point out there is that it's a massive contrast. What we're talking about here is, is football culture. 
And for people like me and you, we look at that and we think, oh, wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. Look at that. 20,000 fans celebrating their identity, uh, coming over to London. They've not been in the Champions League for 25 years. This, this is a kind of life and blood moment for most of those Cologne fans. They're passionate. They're, they're a passionate club, a passionate fan base. And they would go through hell and high water to get to that game, whether they get in or not. So they want to be there. They want to celebrate their football culture. And of course, it's a football culture from continental Europe, which is, is very, very different to a large extent to football culture here, which has become, quite frankly, really sanitised. Mm. And it, it, in the international scene, the cultural dynamics of those groups are far more vibrant. There's a lot stronger uh, underpinning of ultra-identity that's based around the TIFO and the big displays and doing things collectively in a crowd that adds passion, vibrancy and atmosphere to the ground. So I do a lot of work in Sweden, for example, mm. at the moment. And you go to a Stockholm derby, for example, oh, it's utterly fantastic. Tickets are cheap. They've got ultras, they have TIFOs. The atmosphere through those games is phenomenal. And you only see that in a few places here in the UK. And to, to be fair, the, the COP is one of those. There's good atmosphere that comes from the COPs sometimes. And, and these communities are starting to develop in English football fandom, for example, around Crystal Palace, the Holmes, yep. Holmesdale fanatics and so on. But we're not kind of used to it here. And that failure to recognise the nature of football culture was partly what went wrong with the Cologne fans and how they were managed. So they come over here doing what they would do normally, and anybody who understands that culture would understand and be able to predict what was going to happen. So to be able to predict that large numbers of fans were going to travel. And when they arrived, to start dealing with that problem from the point at which they began to gather in, in hybrid fields. But nobody did that. And there was no real engagement or dialogue with those fans. So they left hybrid fields around 6 o'clock, I understand, uh, or earlier, on the understanding that the turnstiles were going to be open so they could go into the ground. But nobody had communicated to them that the turnstiles weren't going to be open. And then they arrive en masse at the stadium and the authorities, the police and the club just simply weren't ready for them. So they had to close down access to the stadium as a whole. And I understand that the gates didn't open until 10 to 8 as a consequence and nobody could actually get into the stadium. And what we were looking at there was a major threat to public safety. So poor was the crowd management and the failures to predict what was going to happen that they ended up in a circumstance where they had to react heavily. And they reacted in often the only way that they can, which is with the use of what we come to call riot police. And the very deployment of those riot police feeds into the narrative, oh, look, these fans have been disorderly, these fans are kicked off, and this, that, and the other. And for sure, there, there were some incidents. But when you look at the video coverage of those incidents, what you, what you start to see is actually they weren't fighting Arsenal fans. They were Cologne fans who were essentially fighting themselves. And when you look in detail, what you start to see is actually it's Cologne fans fighting with Cologne fans to keep them in, in order. Yeah. So it was like self-regulation. And they uh, weren't ticketless. A lot of them had tickets as it materialised. About 10,000 of them had tickets in the home end. Yeah. Uh, but they didn't have access to those entrances. So they weren't being communicated with. So there was all of this kind of breakdown. And then what we see afterwards is, quite frankly, what we saw around Hillsborough, is that where we have a situation where there are some serious failures of crowd management, the first people that get blamed are the football fans themselves. And they draw on these lazy stereotypes of who, who we are uh, and how we behave as if we're kind of inherently violent and that we engaged in violence and here's all of the evidence of that but 
when we look at the evidence, what, what do we see? Well, actually, there was five arrests in that game. Yeah. Five arrests. And you had 10,000 Cologne fans in the home sections and no confrontations, no violence, no fighting with Arsenal fans. So this myth that there was violence and confrontation really is not sustainable and it just exposes um, how these kind of political uh, arguments that are put forward by the right uh, a part of a part of a political process as much as they are, um, you know, a narrative about what went on. Uh, another one again this season. I mentioned it at the top. Manchester City's game at Bournemouth. Raheem Sterling scores in the ninety seventh minute, which a goal that proves to be the winner. He goes towards the fans. The fans celebrate. Some of them spill on the pitch. It's quite tight at Bournemouth, as anyone will know. Um, and then some of the stewards and police. I think it's fair to say are pretty much heavy handed with with the fans. So much so that Sergio Aguero got himself involved and wanted to do something about it. Um, and Bournemouth later put out a statement. AFC Bournemouth recognises that stewards and police were carrying out their duties in preventing encroachments onto the pitch with the safety of players and supporters in mind. Um, I think you know that end bit of that statement in particular rankles with me because exactly what is the threat to the safety of football fans and some players celebrating a goal. In fact... Pep Guardiola actually summed it up pretty well when he said, if you cannot celebrate with the fans, the best solution is don't invite the fans. Uh, you score a goal, you can't imagine how happy the guy is and the team, they want to go to the fans. Um, I'm sure you've seen this clip, but for the benefit of uh, the people listening, there was a really good piece on this from Nick Glynn in The Guardian. He's a retired police officer. And I just wanted to quickly read out his comments because I think they're very good. He says, it's always interesting to watch the reaction of stewards and police officers when a goal is scored. I see fear, anger, aggression, and sometimes panic. For many, it seems the overriding desire is to stop a perfectly normal and natural human reaction to a rare event, rather than taking a few steps back, a few deep breaths, remaining calm and observing, and giving half a minute for things to calm down. And the crowd almost always will calm down, especially where the situation isn't aggravated by stewards and police officers diving in and intervening. I mean, that to me, when I read that from him, perfect sense to me as a football mm. fan who goes regularly, you do lose it when your team scores. If you're passionate about your team, you lose it. That's one of the reasons you go. He's right to say it's a rare event as well. I mean, you know... What's the most goals you get in the match? Well, if you're us the other week, five, but let's gloss over that. But, you know, it is a rare event. You do get excited about it, and particularly when it's in the 97th minute. So why, why are we seeing people in headlocks? Oh, God help us if we celebrate. You know, I mean, you know, it, 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 you know, I mean, these are complex questions. You know, they might seem as though there could be simple answers, but there aren't. And I think that it's important to recognise that complexity to allow us an opportunity to tell it like it is. And I think you're referring to Nick there um, precisely because he is telling it as it is. And he's in a really powerful position to do that because he's an ex-cop yeah. who used to deliver that policing and can reflect on it. And I think that's why we appreciate him coming out and saying those yeah. things. And this is one of the biggest dangers, I think, is that we so rarely get the opportunity to tell it as it is. And when we try to do that, in a sense, it's a really comfortable, uncomfortable argument. You know, I get into a lot of trouble because I am so critical, but I'm only critical because that's what's happening. 
And if we want to solve what's happening, we have to be objective about it. We have to look at it as it is. And, and one of the things that we need to understand about what's happening in the regulation and behaviour around football has been a transition that begins pretty much around 2000 to now, where the police are uh, pulling out of stadia. They are handing over the responsibility to the clubs and to stewards um, because it is their event. Uh, and to be fair, they should be responsible for it. But within that, we then see stewarding becoming more and more prominent a feature of how crowds inside stadia are managed. And in that process, there is something that we need to accept about the lack of training as stewards, the lack of understanding of football culture. A lot of these stewards are, are, are working, for example, as doormen, mm. and they can take a doorman's type mentality into the management of a football crowd, which can be a real problem because you need to understand the, the culture of football fans to understand what they're doing. And okay, they encroached onto the pitch and okay, yes, that is in theory, you know, technically a, an offence. So yeah, of course they are fully within their rights to react to that circumstance and 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 deal with it in, in the way that they did. But the difficulty is, is that as you point out, you know, this is something unique to that moment. It's something unique to that stadium. And the transgression onto the football pitch by those fans was nothing to do with intent. It was just about the celebration. Yep. And had it been left alone, those people wouldn't have been pulled into a very, very difficult situation. And why I think that this situation was highlighted so much as it was by, by the Football Supporters Federation was the aggression with which that was handled. And they talked to us about safety, yet when we look at the images, what we can see is that an individual is in a headlock that could have killed him. Mm. And the reality is, is that on a number of circumstances, a number of situations on an ongoing basis, we are finding crowd management practices that are putting fans' health and safety at risk. And it's not going to be too long before we see another death. It's going to happen. And we need to kind of get ahead of the game and say, look, hang on a minute, we can change this before that happens. We can start to deal with this issue in a different way, uh, a more knowledge and research-based way to try to avoid how it is that we always learn about crowd events. And that is we wait for things to go disastrously wrong. We have an inquiry about it and then we go, oh, we can do it a different way. Why can't we just do it a different way before mm. that happens? I mean, what do you think can be done, sort of, about about the perception of fans as well? Because I think this obviously it, it it's all feeding the same conversation, really. I mean, just some of the things that have gone on this season. I mean, there was there was a fan who with with no previous convictions charged for drinking in view of the pitch. Oh my god! Wow! Uh, but the criminal charge meant that he then failed the security clearance he needed for a promotion in work. Um, what all he has done wrong is stand with a drink in the wrong place at the wrong time, but it's it, that's fed by a draconian law which says you know fans can't be trusted essentially to have a drink and watch a football match. Yeah, if they go to a rugby match, they're fine. Mm. If they go to a cricket match, they're fine. In the same country, and 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 these things as a football fan, I don't understand, and I, I just don't get why these things happen. You mentioned about stewards, and I was glad you did because I was gonna I was gonna ask you about that. I mean, you obviously work with police forces, but. How do you, you know, how can you start to get the message across to stewards as well? I mean, another one that people may or may not have seen is that, you know, some female Grimsby Town supporters were asked to show the bras at Stephen FC's turnstiles to check whether they're underwired or not. As ridiculous as that sounds, that is true. Um, and it just it just goes on, really. It's all the time. I mean, you mentioned Amanda Jackson. For anyone who is interested in this topic, 
I would give her a follow on Twitter. Her Twitter feed makes very interesting reading. Um, she's at FSF underscore fair cop. Um, and she's simply dealing with cases like this almost every weekend, every match. And it's very interesting, just in, I mean, just in case as well, if you do find yourself in some kind of situation, you think this isn't all quite right. Uh, Amanda is a good person to look up in that situation. Um, but it's, I mean, like I say again, you know, we're in 2017, aren't we, Cliff? And it's like, mm. it is staggering the amount of things and, and the amount of things we're talking about there, you know, yeah, bras sure. and, you know, what? Yeah, it's a really <laughs> dra- draconian system around yeah. football fans because I think underpinning it is a understanding, uh, misunderstanding, really, that football fans are inherently violent and disorderly. Mm. I mean, one of the statistics I use to disabuse people of, of this is the arrest statistics. So if we if we kind of loosely uh, map the number of people that go to football in the UK on an annual basis, or rather in England and Wales, it's somewhere in the region of 42 million people. Um, then you look at the total number of arrests, which hovers around 2,500 per annum for all offences. That's not violence-related offences. That can be anything from ticket touting through to serious disorder. Mm. But only a small proportion of those are anything to do with disorderly behaviour. But that total of 2,500 mapped onto the 42 million represents around 0.01% of the population. Now, if you map that onto a Friday night, any city centre as a proportion, the number of arrests and the number of people, it's much higher. Yeah. So this idea that we got that football is a violent place, is it's not sustainable from the outset, yet there's this mythology that sits around it. We've already touched on, on why I think in part that exists. It's because it's a useful political tool to promote a particular rhetoric about the crowd. So there isn't a government in this country that would be elected if it wasn't seen to be in control of public order. Well, where do we have those debates about public order? Well, it's often in relationship to football. So the ability of MPs to position in relationship to this stuff is is really fundamental as well. Uh, So there's all sorts of issues here that have led into a circumstance where there is um, a set of measures around football fans that have been in place for a long, long time. And we can map that back to to some extent to the 1970s and 1980s, where there was such a very serious problem of of violence and confrontation in in football. And here we are now in the 21st century still living with that legacy. But what it seems to me is really important to understand about this is where it sits in relationship to policing. So there's various different portfolios um, that govern the policy and guidance around how the police think about and approach football crowds. And football crowds sit under what's called the public order portfolio, which is part of a broader conflict management portfolio that sits under the security agenda of the state. So for the state in the way that it orients towards football fans, it is essentially in the same portfolio as the 2011 riots. So the agenda is is governed by that way of thinking about crowds. Mm. Well, you take rugby, you take cricket, you take any other major sporting event, doesn't sit under public order sits under events, sits under a fundamentally different portfolio of policing. So the attitude, the, the, the approach that can be developed there is completely different, much more progressive. And uh, for me, one of the ambitions, I don't know whether I'll get there in, in, the, in the progress of my career, but one of the missions that I have is to get football shifted, mm. get it put under events so we can start to treat it like it actually is, which is another event. And we can start to police it as an event rather than as a potential public disorder situation. And I think once we start to do that, we'll see a lot more progressive 
attitude and approach start to develop. Now, that's not to say there isn't a lot of progressive approaches around there. There are some models of good practice that we can draw on and build on. But one of the fundamentals is the kind of overarching structures that sit around how we manage crowds in the context of football. And until we address those broader structural issues, I think we're constantly going to keep running into these problems where people are getting criminalised simply for turning up to a football match. Yeah, and and it's that criminalisation really that I wanted to get into a little bit as well. I mean, it does still feel like it's a lot of the policing, a lot of the rules, a lot of the bans that are handed out. Everything feels heavy-handed, over-the-top, you know, a throwback to the 80s. You know, even thing, you know, you, you still see bubble matches, you still see alcohol bans, you see police on on trains, you, ha- you get dry trains when you're coming back from London and things like that. You know, I came home from Man City the other week and there was absolutely loads of coppers on the on the train. There was no one causing trouble on the train. We were just all going home and the coppers are walking along and counting us and I heard them on the radio saying, there is this many fans on this train. Mm. And it was like, well, and? You know, <laughs> I'm just going home. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and it's sort of... My point on it really is that a lot of this thing, and I think you touched on it before, it almost creates an atmosphere that where you feel like you've done something wrong. So, you know, if you're in a big group and you're having a drink and there's there's riot police hanging around, well, it feels heavy, it feels threatening, it feels like it's about to go off. Mm. If you've got coppers kicking around in the civvies and having a laugh with you, it's a different atmosphere, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's certainly what we try to promote. We try to create an environment where the police are developing what we call a dialogue or liaison capability so that they can police crowd events and football fans in particular uh, through communication rather than through coercion. But that's, that's, that's quite a difficult challenge. It, it is really difficult. We've seen it develop in, in uh, policing and protest um, and we've seen some major developments in UK policing but again, it, it follows a particular model. So we were pushing to try to get them to understand crowds differently and police crowd differently. And we weren't getting anywhere until Ian Tomlinson got killed at the G20 protest in 2009. And that political crisis grew into a review of policing. And in that review, we managed to get in there and put our crowd theory on the table. It was accepted. And off the back of that, we've seen some really interesting developments over the policing of protest based around what we call police liaison officers, which are very much focused on communication. The challenge that we're trying to confront now is, well, you're policing protests like that. Well, why don't you police football fans like that? Mm. Why don't you use that to police football fans? Because when we look at what's happening in protest, it's really effective. You're reducing conflict, you're reducing the requirement for police to be there, and you've got this massive problem in football where you're spending millions of pounds a year policing football fans unnecessarily. And if you could get in there and start using these kinds of approaches, you would reduce conflict, you would reduce disorder, you would increase perceptions of police legitimacy, and you would stop spending vast amounts of money unnecessarily. Now, it seems like an obvious thing to do, but it's been a real struggle. It still is a real struggle, and it's a struggle we're embedded in now. But I I think it's also important to sort of touch back on that criminalisation issue about what are the solutions here. And one of the things that we see a lot is that where football fans are policed, it's almost always the case that the concentration of police is on away fans. Yeah. So you go away as an away fan, you are going to see a much more intensive 
form of policing than you would if you went to the same match as a home fan. And we did a, a little study back in the day. I used to work at Liverpool Uni and there was a, a couple of Liverpool fans who were my students and they came to me with, again with these arrest statistics. And if you look at the arrest statistics, what you find is, is the absolute number of away fans that are arrested is much, much greater than the absolute number of home fans. Despite that every match, you've got 10 times as many home fans actually going to that match. So what it means is you're much more likely to get arrested as a away yeah. fan, right? So why is that? So one of the things we did was just basically we went to a, f a few matches, but the one I went to was uh, when Liverpool played at Blackburn in the Cup. And what we did, simple thing, we just walked around the stadium from about an hour and a half before the end of the game, uh, the beginning of the game. And what, we, what you find, of course, is that we, what we're looking for is police. And there's no police around the home fans at all in the home sections, but you get to the away section with a Liverpool fan, it's just loads of cops. Yeah. Right now, I'm sorry, but if you put cops in any situation, you're going to start getting arrests. It's as simple as that. Yeah. There's a kind of one-to-one -one relationship here. They're going to start picking things up. And some of the things that we see pick up, there's just people being a little bit disorderly, if you like, in the queue. They get pulled out and they get nicked. Now, these people are, are young people in the main. They, a lot of them are coming from communities that are a little bit disenfranchised anyway. And then for for simply turning up at a football match and, and being a little bit difficult, they end up in the criminal justice system. And once they're in that criminal justice system, that can have a really damaging impact on the future trajectory of their life that could prevent them from getting jobs, prevent them from being successful, what we might call citizens. Yeah. So we've got to recognise here that a lot of what's going on here is about young lads getting into a bit of a football culture. That football culture can be a bit leery at times, for sure. Nobody's pretending that all of these people are angels, but the way to manage that is not necessarily through the criminal justice system. And where you see in other countries, for example, in Germany, they have um, fan projects where they uh, the clubs employ what are essentially community workers or social workers to try to intervene into these young groups to deflect them away from criminality, to work with them, to try to get them through this tricky period in their life in a way that doesn't see them getting into the criminal justice system. Because the reality is once they're in that criminal justice system, they're largely going to get locked in there. And what we're going to see is this really kind of negative knock-on effect for, for, for the rest of their lives. It's costing, you know, quite frankly, it's costing the taxpayer loads of money. Mm. We've got, you know, they're ending up in prison, they're ending up in difficult circumstances, all these kinds of things. And I think there's a big, big problem here about the way in which we look at this problem simply in terms of criminal justice. Because we could go a hell of a long way if we didn't do that. If we started looking at it in a dialogue way, in a social work, community work type intervention to try to manage these problems with greater efficiency and effectiveness. Well, it's funny you should mention Blackburn as well, because it's one that I always used to get off my nose going there, is that not only were there a lot of police policing you as an away fan there, but they also filmed you, like routinely filmed you. And it was like, well, what... I'm, I've not done anything wrong. I'm just walking along the street, and you're you're standing there with a camera, fully uniformed, yeah. filming yeah. me, and that again feels intimidating, and it almost almost close to provoking a response, and it does provoke a response from some like you say. You know, we're not no one's saying everyone who goes to the football match is this angel, and mm. they don't need to be policed or whatever. But that's quite intimidating. And what I saw quite a few times when that was going on is you would get lads who would go, "Well, I'm I'll film you then." Yeah, and then you've got the and then there's this dialogues breaking out then yeah. between the police officer and the lad, and it's it's confrontational. Oh, it's yeah. only going to go one way. Isn't yeah, well, I, th I think it's, it's a really good example because it points to some of the fundamentals here. One of them is about perceptions of police legitimacy. We know 
But there is overwhelming evidence that one of the major factors that leads into crowd violence and particularly escalations are perceptions of police illegitimacy. And that example is a really good example of it in the sense that you're not doing anything wrong. You're walking down the street and you're being filmed and you think it's illegitimate and that makes you angry. Yeah. But then if you sort of, well, why does it make you angry? Well, in part, it's because it's a form of policing that you think confronts your rights. And again, this points to the bigger picture. This isn't just about football fans. This is actually about democracy because you have the right to walk down the street with privacy. It's a right protected by the European Convention of Human Rights and the police have a legal obligation to conform to that convention through the Human Rights Act. You have the right to assemble. You have the right to peacefully express your identity. The difficulty is, is that the policing framework around football hasn't yet evolved to recognise those rights properly. And what we need is to push it in that direction because this isn't just about protecting football fans, this is about protecting democratic rights in a range of different circumstances. And football fans are just a really, really salient example of where those confrontations are going on. Really interesting stuff there, Cliff. Really delighted to have you in the office and been wanting to get you in for some time, so I'm glad you could make it oh, over and have that in. chat. Really um, love to do something again sometime as well. Um, as ever, give us your feedback on what you thought of the show. Um, Cliff is also on uh, Twitter himself. He's at Clifford Stott. If you want to uh, look up his work, that's where you can start off. Uh, thanks again to Cliff and uh, thanks to Andy for producing. Uh, that has been another cup of tea. Hello, me again. Um, so that was the chat with Cliff, as promised. Uh, just another little plug then for Tour Player, uh, as this one went out free. Uh, it is £5 a month. It is for around 40 podcasts a month. And we're looking to do more stuff like, like what you just listened to there as well. So it's not just going to be Liverpool. It's not just going to be before the match, after the match, and, and that sort of stuff. Although that stuff will always remain. We're always exploring new avenues, really. New ways of providing original content. New ways of sort of pushing the boundaries a little bit. It does help us that we are full-time on this and we've got the you know, the wiggle room, really, the time to allow us to do that. So again, if you've enjoyed it, please do consider subscribing. Go to our website, www.theanfieldrap.com forward slash subscribe. Cheers. Sports Social Podcast Network.